Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben. Today, we've got a special episode for you from our dear friend Sam Sanders of the NPR Podcast, It's Been a Minute. Sam has been really interested in how candidates and campaigns have been reaching out to voters of all backgrounds and experiences. And in this episode, Sam looks into the political outreach efforts from all parties to Latino voters. It's a fast-growing group and one that somehow is still a mystery to Republicans and Democrats. So let's get to it. Here's the show. Can you hear me? I can. Okay. Thank you for your patience. Um, First things first, tell our listeners your full name and whatever title you want to uh, go by. Yeah, I'm uh, Victor Leal. It's V-I-C-T-O-R-L-E-A-L. Uh, I live in a small town in, uh, on the South Plains called Muleshoe, Texas. And uh, I guess I'm the um, owner, operator of uh, Leal's Mexican Food Restaurants. Yes, you heard that right. Victor Leal is from Muleshoe, Texas. Oh, you don't know where that is? Uh, you got to be kidding. I mean, I I'm, I'm, would be shocked if there's anybody out there in the United States that doesn't know where Muleshoe is. But in case there are <laughs> one or two people that don't know, we are on the South Plains at Muleshoe. We're about 30 miles from the New Mexico uh, border. Uh, we're between so, Victor Leal, besides running that restaurant, he is really involved in politics. He's a Republican, and he's worked a lot with the state Republican Party. He was even, for a few years, mayor of Muleshoe, Texas. The city secretary actually put him up to it. She had about 15 or 20 folks corner me at the restaurant and said, you know, you owe it to your hometown to do this. So they asked me to wait, run Wait, wait, they came to your restaurant and said, you need to run for mayor, sir. Yeah, I was, I was, uh... <laughs> Being mayor led Victor to more political work. And as a part of that work, Victor has done a lot of outreach to Latino voters in Texas. And a lot of that outreach was for the Republican Party. But outreach to Latinos, it can be tricky. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that we made, and I'm part of this, as I assumed, well, Latinos all think like me. You know, I mean, we're, we're conservative, mm-hmm. we're pro-life, you know, we're Catholic, we're whatever. We're hardworking, we're independent, but... <laughs> it's a pretty rude awakening. That's not the case at all. We're a pretty disparate group. <laughs> we, and Victor says that kind of political diversity in the Latino community, it exists even in his own family. And it's really clear this election. So my mom is a lifelong Democrat. She's excited that she's going to vote for Joe Biden. My, uh, I have one, si- one older sister, very conservative, uh, probably vote for Donald Trump. I have a younger sister who is excited to vote for uh, Joe Biden. I have a younger brother who's very conservative. Victor told me that uh, diversity of opinion makes it really hard for anyone to get Latino political outreach for all Latinos right. And he says right now, the type of Latino outreach he's seen from both parties, it's pretty bad. They've just dismissed us. You know, they've dismissed, by and large, the Hispanic community. I think there's, we are going to be, uh, as a group, if you put us under one big umbrella, we're going to be the second largest voting bloc uh, this election. Mm. And you really, so what's been egregious is that, by, by and large, we've essentially been ignored. I'm Sam Sanders. You are listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. In this episode, the power and diversity of the Latino vote and why no one, it seems, when it comes to talking to that community, gets it right. 
We'll hear more from Victor later on whether he's seen any effective political outreach to Latinos this election. But to start, we're going to look at the very word Latino and how this big blanket term obscures a whole bunch of different communities with different experiences and different histories. Why there may be no such thing as one Latino vote. That's after the break. This message comes from NPR sponsor Allbirds, whose products aren't just comfy and purposely designed, but better for the planet, too. Allbirds measures the carbon footprint of all its products and lists it on every pair of shoes, socks, and undies, just like nutrition labels on food, but for your closet. Then they offset those carbon footprints to zero to make their business carbon neutral. With Allbirds, feel confident knowing you're wearing a product that's doing right by your feet and the planet. Learn more about their sustainable practices and find your pair at allbirds.com today. I'm Rodney Carmichael. And on this episode of Louder Than a Riot, did bias against rap lyrics seal the fate of No Limits Mac Phipps? This guy shouldn't be incarcerated. And I know that his music got him incarcerated, but they got the wrong guy. Listen now to the Louder Than a Riot podcast from NPR Music. Lisa Garcia-Bedoya studies Latino politics for a living. She's a professor and vice provost for graduate studies at UC Berkeley. And she wrote a book that is pretty on point for this conversation. It is called Latino Politics. Lisa, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. When I talked to Lisa, she told me that that word Latino, it can mean a lot of different things especially when it comes to politics. So, Lisa, I want to start by talking about a recent news event that reveals a lot about the way politicians successfully and unsuccessfully try to appeal to Latino voters. Um, Talking about the whole Supreme Court nomination process, before Amy Coney Barrett was selected by President Trump, there was talk that he might appoint Barbara Lagoa, a Cuban-American judge, And the thinking from the Republican Party was, well, this might help them get Latino votes. You wrote an entire Newsweek op-ed that said, probably it won't. And also, this kind of thinking is kind of offensive. Explain. Well, at its core is this idea that if I'm a Latina, and I should say for full disclosure, I'm a Cuban-American Latina, so theoretically the type of person that would be most excited about such a nomination that somehow this woman's ethnic, national origin, racial identity would trump any policy preferences or policy concerns that I have. So the idea that if I disagreed with the president on healthcare or on education or on his immigration policy, that somehow all of that would disappear simply because this woman happens to be a co-ethnic member of my community. And that presumes a level of flatness, right, and and sort of non-content mm-hmm. to, to Latino political attitudes that is reductive in, in ways that I think are really problematic, that, that essentially it's just about your race and you're not going to think about anything else um, beyond that. Yeah. And no one actually votes that way. Not even white people. No. You know, like, <laughs> it doesn't happen that way. Nope. Um, you use a phrase that I love in your op-ed. Uh, you call it mariachi politics. Years ago, we used to call it hispandering, but it's the same kind of idea. What does it mean? 
The idea, and, and I should say Democrats and Republicans have done this now for decades, that yes, you're going to have yeah. a rally and you're going to have a mariachi band and that that's somehow going to tell Latino voters that you are on their side and that you understand them, but again, without any actual content, right? So that if I hear this mm-hmm. song or Vicente Fernandez, you know, he played at the Republican convention when George W. was on the ballot. That somehow that's going to make me ignore what you're actually standing for, you know, from from a policy standpoint about education or about jobs or anything like that. And so it's this it's this idea that somehow symbolic outreach is all we want. And my um, Mm -hmm. Marissa Abrahano, who teaches at UC San Diego, wrote a great book on this, and she showed that Spanish language ads actually had less policy content from all candidates than English language ads, right? So this idea that somehow all we care about is that you speak to me in Spanish. I don't actually care about the content of what you're saying. And and again, it's it's insulting, right? And it's it's really um, reducing us to, you know, tacos and and mariachi bands and not Mm -hmm. real policy. Yeah, you know, it's 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 good to hear you say that both sides do this. I will never forget last campaign cycle when Hillary Clinton had a whole day where she was talking about how she's just like your abuela. And everyone was like, no, ma'am, no, ma'am, we're not doing yeah. this. Exactly. They all do it. Yes, yes, they all do it. And again, it really is about this idea that we're all the same too, right? Because not all of us listen to mariachi music, right? Not all of us speak Spanish. Um, and so there's that layer of it too, that not just that all we care about is culture, but that we all have the same culture. Yeah. And most Latinos in the U.S. are English first, right? Correct. Yes. And so, you know, this gets to another big point that you made in your op-ed and in all of your research and writing. You know, when we talk about the quote-unquote Latino community or outreach to that community, it's not just one community. It is dozens, if not hundreds, of different communities. And you list some of the things that really draw distinctions within this large group in the op-ed. You call them multiple axes of diversity. I like that. What are some of those big dividing lines? Thank you. Um, Well, the first big one is national origin. While it is true Mm. that about 60% of Latinos in the United States are of Mexican origin, even among Mexicans, depending on which part of Mexico you're from, that makes a big difference, be it the north or the south. Um, and then you also have generation. There are some people who've been here since the border moved, right? And there are some people who just got here last year, and there's everything in between. And then there's nativity. Some are citizens, some are not citizens. And then there's geography, which is really important, that even people of the same national origin, depending on where they move to, they have a very different set of life experiences. Um, one concrete mm. example is if you're Puerto Rican and you ended up in Chicago, versus if you're Puerto Rican and you ended up in New York, very different um, relationships with other communities, very different history of political engagement. And so even within the same national origin, you have significant differences depending on where people land, how long they've been here, and what the opportunity structures are in the place where they landed. Yeah. Well, and then also one of the things that I find really fascinating when we talk about like the Latino community, I think... The American assumption is that all Latinos are brown, but there are white Latinos and there are black Latinos and there are Latinos who speak English and some who speak Spanish and some who speak Portuguese. Why do you think America is so hell-bent on reducing such a diverse group of people to one group? 
What's that about? Yeah, well, I think the first thing is to just remember that Latin America is a product of colonialism, right? And so the mm. Spaniards and the Portuguese encountered a large indigenous population, many of whom died off, but many of whom did not, right? That was already there. Mm -hmm. And then they imported enslaved Africans to do work. And then after slavery, they imported Asian Americans, many Chinese to do work. And then people, mm -hmm. you know, trying to try their luck in the new world arrived too. This is why Jose Vasconcelos says that we're La Raza, La Raza Cosmica, right? We are of every racial background. Mm. I think the challenge is then once we come, came to the United States, we came into a, a, a system that has a very sort of literally black and white racial structure, right? Yeah. Where yeah. your blackness was really about, you know, blood quantum, right? In a, in a very kind of <laughs> biological way. And so you have mm -hmm. folks who come in who don't, first, they're racially ambiguous because they don't fit in those, you know, boxes, right, that were already here. And you can even have significant differences in phenotype, you know, in sort of your physical brownness or blackness within the same family. And for Latino yeah. families that came during Jim Crow, this was a big issue, especially, you know, here in California, you had stories of Mexican families where, you know, pools were segregated in, in California. Huh. The Mexicans could only use the pool the day before the pools were cleaned, right? And so wow. some siblings would get to use the pool on the white days and other siblings could only use the pools on the wow. Mexican days, depending on what they wow. physically looked like, right? And so I My think goodness. that ambiguity is really doesn't fit in the U.S. context. And so they had to create a box. And so it's this brown box that doesn't yeah. really fit. Yeah. Coming up the limits of identity politics, and who is getting Latino voter outreach more or less right. Billie Holiday helped shape American music with her voice and unique style. But her legacy extends way beyond music, with one song in particular. How Strange Fruit became an unexpected hit and brought on serious consequences for Billie Holiday. Listen now to the Throughline podcast from NPR. Back to these multiple axes of diversity within the Latino community, national origin, race, class, gender identity, nativity, geography, ideology. Which of these do you think is the most predictive in terms of how someone might vote in an election for president? That's a really good question. I think the better way to think about it is... Um, this is one of the reasons I don't like the whole concept of identity politics is that it's not about mm -hmm. your individual identification. It's really about your social position, like where you sit and, and mm. how where you mm. sit, which is the combination of all those things, right, in an intersectional kind of a way, um, affects your life experiences and the ways in which your life experiences then, that those things are the lens through which you understand, you know, candidates and politics and, and what you care about, yeah. right? And so... You could have, you know, a Mexican and a Salvadoran living in San Francisco working in the same industry that even though they're of different national origins, their experience of their work life and the things that came out of that, you know, structure make them think about labor or unions or economic policy in similar ways. And so it's really about kind of where you sit in the hierarchy that then affects, mm. you know, what it is that you think is important from a, a government standpoint. And it just so happens that Latinos are more likely to sit, right, in, in, in lower rungs of that hierarchy. And that mm -hmm. can help explain why then they care about social services and they care about 
education because they tend to be younger and they tend to have kids, right? And they care about immigration because they tend to know people who are affected by the immigration system. Mm -hmm. And so it's really kind of have that combination of experiences then Mm -hmm. drives how you understand what matters in politics. Yeah. You know, it's easy to have a conversation about mariachi politics or hispandering and blame the politicians for getting this wrong and being tone deaf. But there's also a media conversation to have as well. A lot of the way that the entire country conceptualizes what it means to be Latino is because of how the media portrays this community. And one of the things I notice a lot in the discussion of this community, there's this kind of assumption in the coverage of Latinos in politics. There's an assumption that most, if not all of them, are new or recent immigrants. And the story of immigration is is shown to be something that all Latinos have. But we know that's not true. You know, my colleague Andrea Her family comes from the Southwest. They have been there for a very long time. The immigrant story that is painted about most Latinos is not Andrea's story and her family's story. How do we accommodate that? How do we speak to that? Like the narratives being placed on these communities, not just by politicians, but by media writ large. Yeah. I mean, it is true that a significant proportion of the community has arrived since 1970 after the change in the 65 immigration policy. So it is true that there, that there are a lot of folks that have that experience. I, I think, though, that there's something almost comforting because of the, the ways in which Latinos don't kind of fit in the U.S. racial hierarchy. Mm-hmm. I think there's something comfortable about saying that they're new. And I think it's more uncomfortable mm. to acknowledge that long-term presence. And this reminds me, if you want to Google mm. something, way, way back when Johnny Carson was the host of The Tonight Show, I'm showing my age, I know, um, Linda Ronstadt okay. was on the show. Love her. And she had just come out with Canciones de Mi Padre, which was a, it's a Spanish-language mariachi album. And so Johnny Carson, you know, he's, you know, they're going in their little banter and he says, well, what made you decide to, you know, do this music? When did your family get here? And she said, we've always been here. The border moved, mm-hmm. right? We were here since it was Mexico. And it's the only time I ever saw Johnny Carson just flummoxed, right? He did not <laughs> know what to say because that's so contrary to the story. And so I think there's something about conquest, right? In order to justify conquest, you have to tell a new story. And our story doesn't allow us to acknowledge that we actually Mm. took the land from people who were already Mm. here. Yeah, yeah. You know, another thing that I find troubling in the way the media characterizes Latinos when it comes to politics is this general surprise every time any poll indicates that there is small but consistent Latino support for Donald Trump. You know, in some polls, Latino men, one out of three of them support Trump, you know, and there's not, there, there are folks all over the country who are Latino who like him, yet every time this is discussed, you can almost hear the journalists clutching their pearls. <laughs> Why can't folks like me wrap our heads around the fact that some Latinos actually do like Donald Trump? 
I think the first thing, it's back to the point about being reductive about a community. It's absurd to think that that in any group of people, you're going to have 100% agreement. You're talking about a very diverse community with different life experiences, which lead to different ideological orientations. We have Mm -hmm. people who immigrated to the United States to flee left-wing regimes, right? Who were deeply conservative in their country of origin. Why do we think that that would change necessarily when they get here? The other part, though, I think the piece about the gender gap is really important and one that is not talked about enough. And this is not just Hmm. true among Latinos. You have significant gender gap in terms of Trump support among all racial groups in the United States. Hmm. And the difference is the, the level of Trump support is higher among Latinos, but even among blacks, right? The black men are, are more, they're still very unlikely to support Trump, but they're more likely than black women, right? And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think this is where the intersectional piece becomes really important and understanding the degree to which the toxic masculinity that is part of Trump's message mm-hmm. appeals to men of color, in the similar ways that it appeals Mm. to white men. And so to realize that if we want to address oppression, you have to address, this was what Bell Hook said way back in in 1984, um, is she said, you have to address everything at once because these different lines are how the system supports itself and and sustains itself because it's not just you win, we lose, but it's, well, some of you win and some of you lose. And it's got these other pieces that do appeal yeah. to men of all races. Yeah. Machismo knows no race. <laughs> it's everywhere. <laughs> that is true. If you could advise the Biden and Trump campaigns about effective outreach to Latino voters, what would be the biggest piece of advice you'd give them? The missing piece in their strategies? I think what we've been talking about this whole time, right? That there isn't one group and that people have real mm-hmm. needs and real interests that need to be addressed mm-hmm. in policy, right? That there are, Latinos are, and Blacks are much more likely both to get COVID and to die of COVID. And that's because we're the essential workers, right? We're the ones mm-hmm. that are cleaning. We're the ones that are serving and mm-hmm. cooking and, and then trying to, you know, have our kids go to school when we're not there, right? Kids are trying to go to school remotely, but they don't have a parent there to help them And so I think just remembering that people are really, especially right now, are really suffering and they need real solutions and a a real commitment to understanding that that there are differences in need, right, across communities and that you actually have to know something about that community in a meaningful way in order to address those needs. And so long as we're treated as this kind of one-note, superficial, you know, universal monolith, it's almost impossible that we will have the policy solutions we need to actually address what people are facing day to day. Thanks again to Lisa Garcia Bedoya. If you want to hear more from her on Latino politics, she wrote a book all about it. It is called Latino Politics. With all that in mind, I wanted to go back to Mule Shoe, Texas. You remember mule shoe uh you got to be kidding i mean i'm i would be shocked if there's anybody out there in the united states that doesn't know where mule shoe is that is victor leal from the beginning of this episode and he was telling me that latino political preferences are all over the map you'll recall his whole family is politically divided but victor also said there are some things that most latinos he knows agree on there are areas where 
where we do have, uh, it might not be, you know, 90% or 80%, but there's still a broad consensus in the Hispanic community for health care. Victor says education is also a big issue for Latinos that he speaks with. The data bears this out. The Pew Research Center looks into this stuff a lot. And we should note here, in their polling, they use the term Hispanic. A recent poll of Hispanic voters from Pew last month shows that Hispanic voters rate the economy, health care, the coronavirus pandemic, and racial and ethnic inequality as very important to their vote this year, more so than U.S. voters overall. But back to Victor. I wanted to know what he thought about outreach this year. Who do you think has been doing the best in terms of outreach to the Latino community this year in 2020? Democrats, Republicans, Trump, Biden, somebody else? I'm sad to say this, but uh, in a lot of ways, I think that in Texas, I think Beto O'Rourke has, from what I'm seeing, has done a pretty phenomenal job of getting people on the grassroots. I'm getting a lot of texts. I signed up for his text. I'm getting folks asking me almost daily to help them phone bank, uh, to help uh, knock on doors. What does it mean to hear you say that one of the most galvanizing forces in Latino politics in Texas this year is a white guy named Beto. <laughs> what does that say about the community? <laughs> no shade to Beto. I've interviewed him. Nice guy. <laughs> I love I, I love uh, the way you said that. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I've been saying Beto so long, I kind of feel like he's one of us. <laughs> he's his <laughs> so. Victor told me the thing about Beto, the thing about all good political outreach to Latinos, to anyone, it's about working the grassroots. Victor says Beto travels all across the state to all 254 counties in Texas, back when he ran against Ted Cruz for the Senate in 2018. Beto lost, but not by much. And when he campaigned, wherever he went, Latino voter or not, he just listened. And Victor said this was the thing. He talked about real policy, real substance. He was able to express and articulate his positions in in ways, you know, when, when he was on the stump, he would take any question uh, and he would thank the person, even if they were in a pose, you know, even if they were there to heckle. And this was when actually he- having something to say and actually listening. That is good outreach for Latino voters and, well, good outreach for every other voter, too. This episode was produced by Andrea Gutierrez with help from Star McCowan. It was edited by Jordana Hochman. Listeners, we are back in your feeds on Friday. As always, Till next time, stay safe, take care of yourself. I'm Sam Sanders. We will talk soon. <laughs>